Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and automotive controllers. We're your host, electrical engineers, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 348. All right, so before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, um, I'm going to keep saying this until, I guess, the event happens, right? Uh, yeah, November, ring the bell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, November 5th, 2022, that's this year, uh, coming up, um, my Extra Life charity stream is going to run for 24 hours. What is that, you think? It is a video game stream on the internet where I play video games for 24 hours and y'all donate money to me to give to children hospitals all over the United States. Um, so we've been talking about this for the past couple of episodes, um, podcast episodes, and uh, I've been working on kind of like integration with, like, I always like to like do a project um before the stream just kind of like you know practice some engineering chops for like a one-time use project uh like the first year i wrote a a custom script that scraped the uh steam which is a uh steam is a video game marketplace i guess yeah video game marketplace um and they have an api and you can scrape basically your achievement list which is you get achievements for doing certain things in video games. And uh, I made a script that basically would display what achievements I had gotten and not gotten yet. And because that was part of the um, goals of this, one of the streams was to do a hundred percent achievement run in one of the video games. Um, and so this year I'm making a custom plugin that when someone donates the extra life through my, uh, my portal charity portal thing. Um, it will play a custom sound from a Duke Nukem soundboard. And why Duke Nukem? Cause Duke Nukem is going to be one of the video games I'll be playing. Um, I'm trying, I got that part to work. That was actually really easy. It was like literally like every like 30 seconds, it just pulls the, the extra life API go, Hey, do you have any new, like basically notifications? And if it does, then it goes, here's the new notification. And then it will, it just plays a, a sound gif, um, sound. GIF. Oh, so that's actually nice to know. So if you, if you donate, then it might take up to 30 seconds for your sound to play. Well, I'm going to speed that up. I don't know oh, okay. what, uh, I haven't looked into it, what the rate limit is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I know they that, might not like that. Yeah. Because most APIs will rate limit you of like how fast you can hit the... How the, many pings per minute, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, I know that their official plugin is really slow. Like, I think it's like a minute or two sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm hoping to be faster so it's more uh, reactive, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been thinking... I wonder if I can find like a Duke Nukem like synthesizer. So like I can like put in a like text speech, but it's Duke Nukem's voice. I think, gosh, what is it? Uh, they do exist. I, I know. And I bet you there is one for, for Duke Nukem. I was playing around with one a little while ago. 
Um, because it would be nice if like Duke Nukem would like say the person's who donated his name or try to at least because it is a you know synthesizer. Figure something out. I can yeah. already put like people's like name and stuff on the screen if they donate. Um, trying to get it to play like video gifs, um, like little clips, but um, hadn't really figured that part out yet. And then um, I started working with the open broadcast software because right now we're using XSplit. Um, and I'm hoping this is like the last live stream of the podcast we use with XSplit. And I'm hoping to move over to open broadcast software. Um, one, because it's free to use and I don't have to pay XSplit any more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and two, it seems to have a lot more like people or more people using it. So there's a lot more plugins and stuff like that. Um, like there's this whole like Python wrapper thing that you can like use as a module in your Python to like interact with open broadcast software. So I haven't played around with it yet. I like installed the module and then like stopped working on the project for a bit, but Mm -hmm. I'm hoping by next week I have like, I don't know, maybe a demo. Oh, if I'm using open broadcast software and you're seeing the stream live next week, you can see a demo. But like everyone, the majority of our listeners that just listen to us will have to like imagine (laughs) in their brain. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff, (laughs) random gifts popping up on the screen. Yeah. Or some whatever my demo will be. Um, Yeah. I'll start releasing the code though. Like actually the code from that first project is up is like on my GitHub. So I don't know if it works anymore because I haven't ran that code in like two years. Probably works fine. Unless, some, unless like Steam changed the API or something. Um, it's certainly possible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Certainly possible. So next week, demo of that, of what I have. It probably won't be like perfectly. Oh, like the sound effects people can hear. That would totally work. And if I find like a Duke Nukem voice synthesizer thing, that'd be really cool. We'll see, though. So November 5th, 2022, starting at? 8 a.m. a.m. Yeah. Show up anytime. Anytime for after 20, eight. Yeah. After eight till what? November 6th at 8 a.m. Yeah. Though I do sometimes I last two years, I've gone a little bit longer. Um, and then promptly just passed out. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, we are going to do. Uh, there's like two games. We're going to play Duke Nukem Forever and we're going to play Aliens uh, Colonial Marines. We're going to play them on the hardest difficulty. And if I die, it's a shot. Or a drink. I probably should practice those two games to see if it's going to be a shot or a drink. <laughs> it's I probably not a bad idea. I, yeah. Because I know some parts of those games get really like unfair. Like the game's just like, oh, screw you. You're just going to die a lot. Yeah. It's not necessarily hard. Unfair is the, the right word. Yeah, unfair. <clears throat> okay, so uh, November 22nd, uh, for another announcement, we're trying to do a live podcast in Houston. Uh, I will actually be down in Houston then, so we're we're looking at doing something live from there. So if that's something that you might be interested in and you're going to be in Houston on November 22nd, uh, reach out to us on our Slack channel 
or uh, I guess, what is it? Uh, podcast at macrofab.com. Yep. And, uh, and let us know. And we're still looking to uh, figure out a location and get things set up for that. So reach out to us if you're going to be in Houston and you want to come hang out and do a live podcast with us. So <clears throat> on to topics. So the uh, a handful of weeks ago, I mentioned an issue I was having with some um, Atmel chips that were, uh, I was having trouble with some of them programming and some of them basically bricking in a way. Uh, it was a very, it's a very odd situation that I do. I just, I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out what's actually happening here. A lot of people chimed in on the Slack channel with uh, suggestions on what's going on. Uh, maybe some things to try. I ended up reaching out to Microchip to start a, uh, a a case with them and to get to the bottom of it. And there's there's been some movement with that, but also some extra confusion. So so to boil it all down, what happened was I had I had some chips that if you followed a very specific sequence of how to program these chips, they would function properly and they still function properly. I still have them in my office. Uh, but if you deviate from that process and, and program them in a different way, they would get into a state where you can no longer communicate with the processor. And mainly the difference between those two processes is do you, if you program the fuses first versus the program, uh, if, if you do the fuses first, then the program, they function. Uh, properly. If you program the program first and then try to go in the, to the fuses, they fail. Which is odd and doesn't make any sense and is contrary to everything I've worked with before uh, on um, microchip. So, and this first is thing, a new issue too. Like This is a legacy product. Correct. This is a legacy product. We've made hundreds of these in the past and I guarantee like our, our I realized our instructions on how to program them that we would give to our operators, they do not say do the program or the fuses first. It doesn't say, it, it just says that they need to be programmed and the fuses need to be written to it. In other words, if we don't say which one comes first, I guarantee you in the past it's been done both ways. Because it shouldn't matter, right? Well, I guess there are situations you can get into where you where you write certain fuses that prevent you from doing things. Or, or prevent operations depending on the hardware, blah, blah, blah. That's not the case with these uh, fuse settings. These are pretty standard fuse settings. And anyway, the default fuse settings that are on the chip should function with just the, the program itself. So the, that, that sort of negates that anyway. So, so when I first started this case with, with Microchip, I sent them the fuse settings and they reviewed everything and basically came back saying, these fuse settings shouldn't cause any issues with what you have, which that's what I already expected, but they confirmed that. So uh, they said, hey, send us your hex file. We want to scrub through it. So I did that. It took a it took a bit of time, but they looked through the the hex file and they basically said, "There's nothing in this file that could cause your processor to do what it's doing." So both my fuse settings and my processor uh, or my program are both not causing any kind of weird operation like this, like the processor to get into some kind of stuck loop. So I know there was a there was a bit of conversation about, hey, maybe oscillator settings or something like that is getting the processor into a state where it just won't boot. And 
uh, microchip doesn't think that's the case and neither do I. So I'm sort of at the point now where uh, it's, it's, it's starting to get more confusing because microchip said that they can't reproduce it on their side. So apparently they tried to program some of their stuff with our few settings and our program and they have, have no they, problems. Have they done it with the program first and then the fuse? They didn't mention if they had, they just said that they can't reproduce it. And, and I gave them the, I, I told them that, you know, the yeah. sequence. So they just said that they can't reproduce it. Uh, the, the, the information that they come back with is not, terribly descript they they mainly they they don't write a whole essay <laughs> let's mm-hmm. just put it that way back i'm sure they're dealing with hundreds of guys like me saying oh my stuff doesn't work but uh but regardless they said that they can't uh reproduce our issue with our few settings and our program so that's got me scratching my head now uh wondering what could be causing this so so i started looking at our hardware again just to see maybe this is a newer batch of processors and maybe there's something on the edge that previously had just never been a problem and now it is one of the things that i was considering is uh, so the programming interface on these uh ICs it's a it's an ATX mega what is a 64A3U it uses a PDI style uh, atmel programming interface which we do not have a pull up on the reset line. Uh, so, the, and, and if you look at documentation, it's kind of funny. The, the documentation for PDI is a little less descript about if you need a pull up or not. Some of it says yes and some of it says no, but the majority of it says no. And, you know, searching around on Google, uh, most of it is you don't need a pull-up on there. Regardless, I I installed a pull-up and utilized uh, whatever voltage was available on there, and that doesn't do anything. So I I, I don't think that that's it. That well, at least if it if it was, the units I tried that on wasn't wasn't giving uh, any results with that. And then there's not supposed to be any pull-ups on the data lines, which and and. On top of that, the 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 PDI lines, we have a we have a two by six header on our board that is, I don't know, a quarter of an inch max from the processor, and it connects directly to the pins, and those pins go nowhere else. It's just two programming lines that go right to the processor. So it's about as simple as you can get. There's nothing wrong here. Uh, on the hardware side, it doesn't seem like there's anything incorrect and about half if if not more than half of the batch functions i was able to program it and it works so i don't know now it's starting to get even more confusing because we can't reproduce the issue but i have plenty of units where they're just dead so my those were and those were programmed with the out of the backwards style well i I guess the maybe not backwards but like the known working style as as soon as I found the known working style, I went through the entire batch of units and did everything in the known working way. And every single one I did with the known working way functioned properly. But we had already done maybe 20 units the incorrect way. And I'm not able to salvage those. Yeah, you, that's the interesting thing is it bricked the microcontrollers. Exactly. Now, I, I, would, I would see if you could send one of those bricked ones. Yeah. to microchip and be like what is wrong with this yeah I'm, I'm i'm really tempted to uh just 
mainly out of curiosity. Yeah, like I mean, it would be nice to have the units, but I'm really curious, like what what could be causing this? And and another thing that they suggested is perhaps there's something with Atmel Studio that's causing issues with it. So they suggested, hey, Atmel actually has a command line programmer that's a, a you know a, a separate. Um, program from Atmel Studio. So I tried using that and, and effectively what it is, is it's just uh, like a version of AVR Dude if you've ever used that. Yeah. Which like <laughs> AVR Dude is the back end of like a lot of stuff out there. Uh, and uh, the, the thing about it is like, I can't imagine that the, I can't imagine that AVR Studio is just like a nice, or at least the programming portion of AVR Studio is just a nice GUI on top of AVR Dude or or yeah. what or their version of ADR AVR dude. So regardless, I tried programming through this command line, and uh what's it's it's exactly the same. I can program known working units, but it won't even talk to bad units. Like you I don't can't get, even do chip erase. You don't even, okay. Oh wow. Like you don't I, know, even, I can't, yeah. I get nothing. You don't even get like the uh, ID for it, huh? Not even the ID, and 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 I I absolutely do establish communication to. I'm using a uh, an Atmel ICE programmer, so I can see that it talks to the Atmel ICE and it receives information from the Atmel ICE, and then when the ICE tries to establish communication with my units, it just it just craps its pants at that point. Like that's hmm. that's the end. Uh, and 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 I, I I tried it today on about two units that were known good that had actually been programmed, calibrated everything. And it was able to talk to those. I was able to erase them. I was able to reprogram them. No problems. And then I took about five units from the the bone pile that are bricked and all of them are still bricked with the command line programmer. Like I said, it's probably the command line programmer is probably the exact same thing that the program in AVR studio uses. It's just, that was microchips next suggestion. Mm -hmm. Use that. And so, yeah, there is something unique about those processors. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. I can brick one of the good ones. I'll never get it back. But if I go and I program it incorrectly, it's toast. It's done. But according to Microchip, the fuses are fine and the program is fine. So what could be causing that? I'm just, I don't know. I'm scratching my head. So, uh, yeah, I would send one to Microchip to see what they say. Like, yeah, if they will actually yeah. dig into it. But I got another theory. Yeah, what's that? your instructions never say, um, you know, which one's first, but it could be some tribal knowledge that got lost. Like, did, did was there someone that was programming them for a long, long time and then left the company or switched positions? Let me think about this. Um, and then new guy comes in, follows the instructions, and then part of the time did it one way, part of the time did it the other way. That, that's that's a good point because come to think about it, okay. So is there any actually is there anything in Microchip's documentation about that chip that, or I guess Atmel Atmel's documentation that says you have to do it one way or it will brick. Uh, nothing I've seen, but I haven't searched specifically for that. Yeah, I would do that too. Like, I wonder if there was some tribal knowledge there because this product predates you too at that company. Yes. And I wonder if there is like, 
and that person got let go or left or got promoted or whatever that didn't Are, get written down um, <laughs> for the next you dude. know okay so so from those days i mean many many years ago uh, we had three people in our testing department one of those people is still there the other two left to uh pursue other things and uh, one of the people is still there uh, she's actually the head of the testing department now. I can ask her if um, if she remembers there being a specific way. It may have been tribal knowledge that was like accidental. Oh yeah, that's I mean tribal well, knowledge almost all time almost is always like, accidental. Yeah, well, and it may like I said, it may have just been accidental that of the two ways you can program this fuses first or program first, they just did fuses first. And then that was how it was from there on out. You know? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a, that's a good move. I'll, I'll ask about that. That's the only thing that makes sense. Nothing makes sense about this. <laughs> I, I, I feel like what's going to happen is like, we're going to, we're going to find out what it is and it's going to be something really, really stupid. And I'm going to be like, Oh my God, like we wasted all this time on this. But that, I mean, that's why I was going back to being like, okay, is it pull-ups on a reset line? Is it something stupid like that? And uh, no, the answer is no. Like every time I, I look for the stupid solution, that doesn't seem to be, it seems like we have our Oliver Ducks in a row. Yeah, I mean, because it's a legacy product that's been working. Nothing mm-hmm. changed except mm-hmm. it's a new run. Correct. It, it, it's a new run, yeah. Now, the boards are different. They got slightly changed. Um, but everything about the processor and virtually 99% of the circuit is the same. In fact, anything that might have changed might have been like small value changes that have nothing to do with power or the processor. All of that's still the same. Uh, so yeah, no, nothing is different here. <laughs> and the units that work, like I, I went through, I think it was 45 of them or something like that. I got zero failures. All of them function the way they should. They all went through the test procedure. Fine. No issues whatsoever. Calibration easy. And processor does exactly what it's supposed to do. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. So that's a good idea. I'll hit up microchip and say, Hey, can I send you one of these? Can you look at it? And the, one of know. the bricked ones. Yeah. Also this, this, uh, somebody mentioned, uh, that AVRs, certain AVRs have a high voltage recovery mode where some AVRs you can hold. I don't remember which pin. It might be power. You can hold power at a high voltage. Maybe it's, Actually, it's probably not power. I think it's reset. Uh, you can hold it at a high voltage, like twelve volts, and it will, it will reinstall known, like like default fuses. So if you write bad fuses, you can just high voltage that pin, and that'll get it to its state where at least it'll boot. Well, this chip doesn't have that, so <laughs> I can't. Yeah, of course, right? Totally. So yeah, and and that's just the thing. It bricks, and I don't know what state it's bricked in. Uh, so what are the fuses that it's bricked with? I don't even know because I can't even talk to the thing. I can't even erase it. That's strange because usually, like, if you make a mistake, you can still at least go in and erase the chip, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it loses 100% communication. Yeah, uh, Jason in, in Twitch chat um, it's not an external clock. We've, we've 
been down that road with this. Um, It's not a... It's like an order of operations problem that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Right, right. Like, basically swapping the bootloader and uh, programming around bricks it. It doesn't make any sense. Because usually if if you can talk to the device... And let's say you put the program on it, you should still be able to flash the fuses and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this time around, it's not that. It Unless not. this specific chip is supposed to be that way. Because it is a weird microcontroller. Like, it's it not is. a normal microcontroller. Well, and, and actually, I think a lesson to be learned with this is when writing instructions, it it does actually pay off to make things sequential. Things that don't seem like they matter, they might. So, yeah. uh, you know, if you know it works by writing fuses first, then program, write your instructions to say, do these fuses first, then write your program. Exactly. Yeah. But then so. we wouldn't have a topic to talk about on the podcast. Like continuing topic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to get to the end of this. And uh, we'll we'll see if I can send the uh, me, yeah maybe I can send them a good and a bricked unit and say unbrick this somehow yeah that would be nice um, yeah to figure out what actually is going on there and why that's causing a problem yeah I asked them if they would be interested in the in the uh, the, the 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 laser marking on the on the the I, the chips and they didn't even answer about that. Hmm. So they're probably really busy too. I'm sure they're super busy. So, um, oh, because it's an Atmel part, right? It is. And you're talking to microchip engineers, so they probably don't want anything to do with that Atmel part number. I'm yeah, I'm sure they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Micromel, or is it going to be at chip? At chip, I like at chip. <laughs> I like at chip a great. lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think we made that joke though when like this that whole merger was going down though. Micromel. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that we're going to change our title. It, our title this week was going to be "It's AVR Dude All the Way Down," but I do like is it is it Micromel Micromel or at Chip? <laughs> I, I I'm okay. AVR Dude is is funny because I I can't tell you how many times I've had to deal with AVR Dude just given. You know, you 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 work with a client, and they're like, "Okay, well, here's how you program my thing. Pull up AVR Dude and drop these commands in, and make sure that your file path is correct." Kind yeah. of stuff. And and it's funny because if you go to AVR Dude, like the website, it looks like something out of like 1997, and uh, it's not like the most. For, for I'm not criticizing it. It's awesome because it gets the job done like really really well. But for how like. I guess I don't know. Stripped down, it looks. It's surprising how much relies on it. Like it is oh, the yeah. basis for so much out there. I mean, that's like all software, though. Yeah, that. yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Once you start writing a lot of your own software, Stephen, like you realize how much stuff is interconnected to other stuff. Like, oh, for sure. And rely on like open source libraries and stuff. Uh, absolutely, it's a little scary. It's completely different in like the hardware world. Where like hardware engineers, a lot of hardware engineers, 
and let's even say like engineering departments will develop their own everything footprints silkscreen designs all that stuff and so you are building your own library whereas the right. software world is just like i'm just going to borrow that and import oh, that yeah. in python just yoink everything from wherever yeah. you can get it <laughs> yeah it's it's a completely different mindset i guess it is um, yeah a lot more trusting yes a lot more trusting i think that comes down to uh the difference between like compiling and or just running code versus I'm going to need to wait two weeks for this prototype that's going to cost a couple thousand dollars to get made. Um, and if the part's off, then we have to start that all over again. Right. Yeah. Buddy of mine was, was telling me um, one of the CMs he came from right before he left, he worked on a job. It was six boards and it was a hundred thousand dollars for those six boards. Jeez. So, you know, you're not going to rely on just like trusting someone else's stuff. If you're spending that kind of money, trusting know? someone else's stuff that doesn't have stake in your project. Yeah, absolutely. Cause a lot of companies will build their own internal libraries. And so you as an engineer trust that library, but that's because your company has done its due diligence to put that together. Right. Right. And and there's continuing due diligence as they maintain it. Yeah. Whereas a PCB like, librarian is is still a thing. Oh, as a title? As a full job. I'm imagining like <laughs> like like uh Hogwarts style like library and like <laughs> you pull up the dusty tome that says chip components, and you open up the page to O eight oh five. I love that. <laughs> it's just J deck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Awesome. All right. Let us know what microchip says next. Well, yeah, we'll, I'll keep you guys in the loop. Yeah. All right. Long, long forgotten project of mine. The Jeep prop fan. This must've been like when we were first starting the podcast. Um, what the Jeep prop fan was, uh, it was a, um, a parallax propeller controlled board. Like that was the microcontroller and it would receive signals and, uh, from like various parts of the engine, like fan, like temperature and, and pressure and that kind of stuff. And it would control fans and lights and that kind of stuff. Um, and it had like a screen. Um, actually I, pretty much finished the project. I just didn't install it in the Jeep, basically. Like, I ended up going a completely different route on the Jeep um, instead of using that board, but it all worked. Um, but for my new, like, project car, I have a 1965 Chucker, and I'm kind of going in a different route than the Jeep. The Jeep is very, like... You turn switch and that sends a signal to a relay and the relay opens and then that does something, right? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of trying to do more modern. That's like old school style like controls in a car. Like like, Like Jeep controls. Yeah, old school. (laughs) Um, I'm thinking about in the checker trying to do more modern stuff, um, especially since the engine management is it's actually going to have its own uh, engine computer that will have CAN bus. And so I've been like playing around with CAN bus a little bit. 
And I'm like, hey, what if um, I, I was like, oh, I'll make my own engine controller. Well, there's plenty of open source projects that exist out there and closed source projects that exist for engine management. But um, I'm like, well, that's pretty much a solved problem. There's no reason for me to make another competing engine controller, right? Um, but I was like, well, what about power control modules? Um, so what a power control module or PCM is, is it basically controls everything else in the car that's not the engine. Like controls all the motors, lights, um, AC, that kind of stuff. Um, a modern, some modern cars or manufacturers call them like body control modules. In that similar vein, there's the engine and then the chassis slash body. Um, so I'm going to... And I looked around. I couldn't find any open source PCMs out there. Uh, if someone knows, let me know because I'd like to just iterate on that project first, making my own. But um, you can go buy PCMs. There's like Holly makes some. Um, there's a bunch of companies that just make them. Um, but they're all closed source and they don't do everything that I want it to do. Uh, so we are going to roll our own. Um, and make one. And so we're going to turn the cheap Jeep prop fan project into this PCM project. Um, except we can't really call it the Jeep prop fan because one, it's not for the Jeep anymore. And it's also not going to have the prop. So I'm basically throwing everything away. <laughs> I'm basically starting all over. Ultimate feature creep. Yeah. Just throw it all away. Start over. Um, so we're going to use, we have to come up with a new name for it. We'll probably wait till later for the name. But that's like for me. That's like the first thing because you you like make a new schematic, and the first thing that Eagle asks you is like, "What's the name?" And you're like, mm. "Oh," so that's like the first thing I always think about, like the name. Hey, at work, I've had full products done without a name, and that's like the last <laughs> the thing last where thing? it's like, we, oh, like we're we're, ab we're about to sell this thing. We have to call it something. Oh, that would drive me insane. Yeah. That's honestly that's that's been the hardest thing at work is coming up with a name. Yeah, sort of thing. that's always the first thing I come up with is like the name, because <laughs> then the feature set just falls into place. Oh, I'm sure it does, right? <laughs> like that easy, just, just that easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so um, don't have a name for it yet, but that's fine. Um, we're going to use the Raspberry Pi Pico because uh, that's like the new, the new hotness for for open source projects for hardware. And you can get it. You can get that chip. Yeah, the RP2040. Um, you can get the microcontroller part for it. Um, I've got a couple Pico boards lying around. Um, now, the next decision is, once we get the hardware kind of put together, is um, do we use Arduino-style C for everything, or do we use MicroPython or, like, or CircuitPython? Because um, those are two different things, apparently. <laughs> well, well, okay. So this actually harkens back to I don't know a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, when we talked about: uh, Do you want your product or your project to be done by other people? Yes. If you want it to be done by other people, the 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 uh, the Raspberry Pi Pico is is thumbs up on that, and Arduino C would guarantee be the one to pick to get the most amount of people doing it but is it going to suit your needs is the yeah question. i think it would for sure 
I think about basically writing a lot of it in C and then having my my oh having Python basically wrappers for it. So you could call functions from a Python environment um, mm. just to make um, controlling or the not controlling, but how stuff interacts will happen in the Python side. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. It could be garbage and then we just write it all in C, right? Um, you're not going to get any complaints here from me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know yet um, how we're going to do that. I think that's, that's down the road. So, got to start thinking about it, though. Um, I do want to start using the, the the program input outputs, the PIOs, um, mm-hmm. which are basically lookup tables-ish from what I can gather. Like, Isn't it kind of like a text file in a way? Yeah. Like, given a certain input, this is what the outputs are going to be. It's basically yeah. what it is. Um, which is great for controlling reactionary stuff. Like if you press the headlight button, the headlights should turn on, right? That'd be that nice. doesn't need a CPU to do that. So you can have the PIO do that part. Right. Right. Um, turn signals, that kind of stuff. That's like yeah. stuff that's like switch reaction kind of thing. Like with no processing, like I don't need to know what temperature the engine is at to, make sure the right blinker is blinking. <laughs> right, right. So it's those, sort of, it's just disconnected from your main loop in a way. Basically, yeah, yeah. It's it's like, it allows you to do some really quick, almost like parallel processing, but they're actually just completely separate pieces of hardware inside the chip. Right. Um, I, I'm kind of excited to see how that stuff works um, and how like, how does the... IO part of it work like can you assign it to certain pin like can you assign it to any pin so that'd be crazy like if you can go oh um this one pin instead of having dedicated inputs and dedicated outputs maybe you can be a lot more flexible like you can pick any input could be your turn signal stock switch right mm. and um which makes wiring easier instead of having to be like no pin two on connector eight is like the turn signal switch so that would be it's going to be interesting to figure that stuff out. Well, if that's true, then it really would fit a little bit more of what you're talking about with like a, a modern style where it's not, you know, headlight has to go here kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, which is how a lot of the um, PCMs that you do buy are like that. Like this is headlights. This is turn signals. This is brakes. Well, that does make it really simple. You don't have to configure anything at that point. No, but I want to be able to configure it. Of course. That's, that's why I want it more difficult. That's why I want Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it might be some stuff I want to like do down the road. Like um, you can do uh, um, there's some interesting stuff that's coming down the pipeline for cars like brake lights that flash when they first turn on or or actually sent or sensing change of rate. So like if you just slowly apply the pedal it just turns them on like normal. But if you like hit the pedal hard, so you're stopping faster, that's, that's actually a big problem with like indicating behind or indicating how your rate of change of speed. Right. 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 That's nothing. They're slowing down and then there's, Oh shit. Yeah. There's, and those are two different things. Yeah. Two different things. And so getting the attention, cause you don't want to just like flash the people behind you with red lights all the time. Cause that just, it, it's the, um the problem with uh what's it called um 
this when you when you apply stimuli the same way, even new stimuli to the human brain, like you you react quickly to it because it's new. But when it's the same over and over and over again, your body just gets used to it and like just starts to ignore it. So like when the um, when they added third brake lights to cars as mandatory in the United States, like rear ending, like rear end accidents dramatically dropped as a result. Um, and everyone's like, woohoo, we did it, right? We solved it. We're but done. then it went back up. <laughs> yeah. But then it went back up <coughs> because everyone got used to the third brake light. Mm. So it was just a normal thing your body just reacted to. It didn't go all the way back up to how it was, but it didn't. It it came back. Um, it rebounded a bit, I guess. Um, so you don't want to like flash the like all the time because then everyone's just like whatever, right? Your brain just turns that off. So you want to only do that when like you're heavy braking. There's some interesting like papers out there about brake light safety and that kind of stuff. Now. In the United States, you can't do that yet because it's it's in code that you can't have a blinking like red light on the rear of your car or something like that. So you can't do that. You have to just have solid brake lights. Um, but but that might change. But that might change because um, I think they're over in Europe. They're using they're doing that now. Um, maybe a couple other places. But I definitely know Europe has brake lights that flash depending on like how hard you hit the brakes. So. But you would really want all your automotive companies to agree on what constitutes a blink versus what constitutes an, a solid on. Because as soon as one person breaks the mold, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It would probably be like, well, it would be in whatever the dot code is specifies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the US dot code takes forever to change. And it's probably one of the most slowest moving regulatory bodies in the United States. Um, so yeah, that's why you would use the PIO <laughs> in, the, in the Raspberry Pi Pico to, to control like brake lights and stuff, so you can do those kind of changes. Right. Um, on the on by just changing code instead of having to like, oh, now I need like a flasher relay that's hooked up to uh, my brake lights now. Um, I started doing some of the preliminary work on like the hardware, uh, just looking around um, what you can buy. Solid state relays in this range are really, really expensive. So we're not doing solid state relays because like that was one of the a couple months ago when we were talking about maybe designing a PCM. This is months and months ago. We mentioned solid state relays. Um, they're like $30 a piece in like the amperage and voltage range I would need for this project. And I'm like, that's not happening. Cause I need like 24 outputs. <laughs> yep. Yep. And they're big. Yeah. Well, size doesn't really matter for this project. Cause it just gets, uh, it goes under the dash and old cars have lots of space underneath the dash. Uh, but yes, they're, they are large. Um, most, the biggest problem is they are expensive. So we are going to use MOSFETs for sure. Um, I thought about relays. Relays would be definitely cheaper, but I'd like, I'm going to try doing a fully solid state design for this. Mm. Yeah. Relays so, have um, uh, potentially uh, reduced lifespan also. You don't want to have yeah. to go in and replace relays. Yeah. Um, 
Don't want to replace relays, and I, I, I kind of want to try a solid state design for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to have to put in some H bridges for bidirectional motors, like electric windows, um, door locks, that kind of stuff. I don't think I'll put door locks in the checker, um, or electric door locks. I should say it will have door locks, but not electric ones. Um, but as an option for if someone else uses this project, you know, um, and I do want to be able to integrate other sensors that the engine management might not have, you know, use for. Um, so I'm going to combine it with like the Octoprober project too. So the Octoprober was a also a parallax propeller project that basically had eight thermocouples that would plug into it. And so I'm like, well, for the checker, I need like six thermocouples that the engine management software won't know anything about. Um, so we're doing, um, man, this, we're going way down the rabbit hole for 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 uh, automotive stuff, but we're going to be putting a uh, turbo on the engine that's in the checker. Okay, so it has boost. So, um, but the other part of that is so it has boost but we're also doing modern fuel injection with um not direct port but basically multi-port injection so that there is a there's an injector on each cylinder and six cylinders um and so it has six injectors the problem with the engine i'm using getting going more more digging this hole deeper on on, on this tech or lack of tech, I guess, on the engine side. The iron side has, like, no tech. <laughs> um, the inputs or the intakes to this engine are called Siamese ports. So two, so cylinders one and two, uh, three and four, and five and six share intake ports. Okay? Mm. Which makes sense. Like, if you think about it, oh, they're right next to each other. Sure, they can share the intake port, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem when, when you just have like, what's called a, a, a wet, uh, manifold, it's when the fuel is in the manifold side, uh, it kind of just mixes all together with the air and everything's kind of okay on distribution. It's not really, but it works well enough for Siamese ports to be okay. The problem is when you start moving from like a carburetor, which is you know, just dumping all the fuel into the manifold to multi-port, which is moving the fuel injection basically right on the back of the valve that's going into the cylinder. Um, with the timing of the intakes opening up, you get what's called fuel scavenging problems, where like basically 75% of the fuel goes into cylinder one and only 25% goes into cylinder two, um, which is a problem. And so you can't really do multi the normal or old school style multi-port, which is just like firing all the injectors at once. Uh, can't do that. So you have to do what's called sequential fuel injection, which is basically firing the injector right when the valve, like right before the valve opens up, you fire the injector. So you know that fuel goes into that cylinder. A little more complicated. So bringing this back around to the Jeep prop fan, is uh, most engine control manage it like hardware only do like maybe one thermocouple okay why do we want more thermocouples well 
Um, for to make sure that we are basically injecting fuel into the engine evenly, so we have good distribution. There's two ways we can make sure of that. Um, one is we put an O2 sensor, an oxygen sensor, on all the exhaust cylinders like coming out. So we make sure that all those are the same level. Problem with that is those are really expensive. Like an O2 sensor is like 100 bucks, plus all the auxiliary hardware that you need to read it, and it's slow. Like O2 sensors are not the fastest at reacting. What is fast are thermocouples. Thermocouples are really fast at reacting to temperature changes. And so what you can do is you use one O2 sensor to measure like all the exhaust coming out, right? So you can make sure that, hey, total, we are in our stoichiometric like burn ratio, right? But then what you do is you put six thermocouples on the engine because we have six exhaust cylinders. And so if there are at different temperatures, then you know that you, you have lean and rich cylinders. And so basically you get to the point where that, that's why we want more thermocouples is we want to be able to see, hey, which cylinders are rich and which cylinders are lean. And you can tweak the timing on your sequential injectors to be more correct, I guess. So, so okay. I'm, I'm tracking here, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is how does the tuning action actually take place? Uh, so say you have, uh, you have, five cylinders where all the temperatures on those are are the same and then you have the six cylinder where and it's running real hot does yes. that does that mean that you slow down fuel or do you do you you uh, increase the duties you you start um sooner yeah you start sooner so you spray more fuel before the okay. intake opens up there that's how the tuning would work okay so you basically go cylinder by cylinder uh but and here's the thing are you trying to just uh, make the relative temperatures the same or are you trying yeah. to hit a particular temperature? So the would ideally there would be an ideal temperature, but you don't know what that you is. You don't know what it is. You don't right? know what yeah, it is. Yeah. So you want them all to be relatively, you, what we want to do is you want them to all be relatively the same. Yeah. And your O2 sensor is reading the right ratio for all the cylinders at once. Yeah. So okay. that's the trick. It's a little bit of a balancing act. So you're balancing six temperatures plus the O2. Yeah, so usually your engine management software is looking at that O2 sensor and monitor and basically adjusting the whole fuel map, right? So the mm-hmm. the entire engine's fuel map for all the injectors get adjusted from that O2 sensor. And then you're tweaking the individual maps per the temperatures basically. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, really complicated. <laughs> Engine tuning on what we're building is going to be really crazy because it's it's a 1960s era Chevy engine that we're putting basically modern super like like last 15 20 year style injection on it or actually I would say last 10 years. Most cars don't still don't have in, uh, like sequential injection. Most are like batch style injection, where like it just fires like all the injectors at once, and just the the science or the the flow of all the fuel like it it's um, designed so that the distribution is going to be good enough, so it doesn't matter, right? But because of this one particular engine has really weird 
intake ports, you can't really base it on that. So you have to go the extra mile to make sure your tune is right. Man, you know what I'm smelling? I'm smelling an auto-tune PID loop that that oh, does that's, all they, the yeah. cylinders. That that um, the, a lot of uh, companies make um, basically throttle body injection modules. I, I have one on my Wagoneer that is auto uh, it auto learns that way. Um, mm-hmm. It's not perfect, um, but it works really well. But it's that is also assuming hey. Your intake is designed correctly, so you have really good distribution already because it's only using basically its feedback is one O2 sensor. So all That's your cylinders, saying, like it sounds like one. you need six of them though. Yes, um, that'd be insane. <laughs> <laughs> we would you be designing own. our own engine management computer at that point, and effectively, I, yeah, yeah. I don't really want to do that though, because um, that's. Yeah, that's just been done. Well, but okay, but you're 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 going to be doing that yourself effectively because you're just going to be looking at your O2 sensor and the temperatures, and you're going to manually tweak values, right? Yeah, but that once you set it, it's going to be it's done. It's yeah. done. Yeah. No, I'm not talking about a loop that runs continuously. I'm just talking about the initial tune. Oh yeah, yeah. Honestly, it will probably be like two cylinders, or probably be two cylinders will be off. And one's probably going to be lean, and one's going to probably be rich, and then adjust those two, and it'll be fine. It's not going to be like each one we need to adjust. Well, and and at the same time, I bet you the uh, the fat tolerance is pretty wide on them. Yeah. So, like, even if even if they were all a, a decent bit off, it'd probably still run. Oh yeah, it, no, it will run. It's just making sure. So once we start putting boost into the engine, <laughs> yeah, that's when the the EGT, the exhaust gas temperatures, really start to matter. Because mm-hmm. when you start running more boost, and uh, you basically the big problem is if you go lean, because then your your exhaust temperature of that cylinder goes way high. And um, well, the first thing that happens is. Um, since this is a iron block um, with iron pistons, or I think they're iron or steel steel pistons, I guess. Um, what happens is the rings start to lose their temper. So, like the cylinder rings that actually hold all the gases uh, in the cylinder and also keep all the oil out of the, out of the combustion chamber, lose their temper because they heat up and they get so hot that they actually lose their their because they're they're like spring steel. There's different yeah. materials, but essentially it's spring steel. And yeah, it loses its temper. And then one, all your combustion gases go th- past the rings into your crankcase. So yeah. you start basically blowing smoke out of like your, your oil pour area. Yeah. And then oil goes into your cylinder and, and you, you start, start blowing oil out of your exhaust. <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing that happens. If you were, if you push even further, you can melt pistons, that kind of stuff. Um, we probably won't melt the piston because it, you know, it's an all all steel engine. But if you have like an aluminum block or an aluminum piston, you'll totally melt them melt them down before like you decide this is probably not working. Yeah. <laughs> Boost. <laughs> but I'm really excited for this project because like I get to learn a new microcontroller. Um, I know how to control like motors and that kind of stuff. Um, and I've the Octoprober was a 
I'm just going to lift like the analog design straight and use that because I'm like that worked really well. It like it did the job. It did. It worked really well. So I'm just going to lift that part. I'm going. Well, I can't. I probably can't lift it directly because of supply chain problems. Because <laughs> I think it used you like were, a you were using. Part. Uh, I thought it was the TI stuff. Um, the, those TI analog inputs that that handle all kinds of uh, temperature probes. Oh no no that that was that was something. Oh, else. you're right. <laughs> that was something else. No, we should use that instead because those those chips are awesome. Yeah. So forget about the Octoprober. Octoprober is <laughs> dead to me now. Yeah, we're using those. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 I don't want to feature creep this too hard. But those those temperature, they're A to D's that are specified for temperature. Uh, I don't probes. think they were TI. I think they're LT. Maybe, um, but I, I remember ones, the these ones were awesome because they handled what two wire uh, thermal couples, three wire, four wire, and two wire RTDs. Yeah, and. Uh, what NTCs at the same like they basically you could reconfigure the front end yeah any any kind of analog anything. temperature reading it could do and you yeah. just have to set up the front end to handle it right right it's pretty awesome yeah I should use those those things are legit <laughs> they're not cheap but you know and not cheap as in like I don't know eight bucks in yeah. singles will get you uh, six inputs so eight inputs something I like think that. it was like four. Yeah, I should just use those. Yeah. Yeah, I would do that. And people will be like, why do you use such an expensive part when like this other thing will work just fine? And I'm like, because. 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 Yeah. Because it's an open source project. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so we'll talk about we'll talk about adventures in um injection molding next week, which is kind of like the finale of that whole arc of Steven's life. <laughs> yeah. For the past few years, two years, I've been getting, uh, working up towards stuff getting made. And I now have 60,000 things in my office. <laughs> <laughs> All made up. So, uh, I, some, 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 uh, interesting stuff to learn from that. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. So with that, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. And also, our Twitch chat, or Twitch stream, or whatever. Um, you go to twitch.tv slash MacFab at, what, 7 o'clock Central Time on Tuesdays. See you there. <laughs>